From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and welcome to the Holiness Podcast. It's great to have you with us for the first time, perhaps, or if you have been with us before, welcome back to our in-depth study of the doctrine of holiness. Now, in recent months, we have been studying corporate holiness, and I just want to remind us of where we've been so that we can paint the context and be reminded of of the groundwork that we have been laying to think of holiness as the responsibility of the people of God as a whole and the call to be holy as being a call to us together as well as individual. Holiness, you remember, is all about relationships and it's all about connections. And we're going to be stressing today Holiness in our connection with other Christians. Now, if you have your Bibles, I hope you can can open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Two programs ago, two podcasts ago, we were discussing uh, and studying 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And those of you who were with us will recall that we were looking at Paul's dealing with the Corinthians in their immaturity, which showed itself in the divisions that were existent in the church. And then in the last two-thirds of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he taught very directly using three metaphors, first telling them that as a group of believers, they were like a field. But he stressed that it's God that gives the growth. And uh, their penchant to look and identify with leaders was a mistake, that they should look only to the reality that God gives the growth. And then he said that they are like a building and identified various roles, but then stressed that Jesus is the foundation of that building. And then in what we focused our attention on, very uh, directly, he told them that they were the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit lived in them and that that meant they needed to be holy. Now, from 1 Corinthians 3 to the last podcast, we looked at Colossians 3.28, where we saw that the goal of the church, according to Paul writing to that church, is to present everyone complete in Christ. And we studied about how that is Paul's metaphor for holiness, being complete or perfect in Christ. And the church's purpose is to present every believer as holy, set apart and complete before the Lord. Now we come to direct teaching on the church as the body of Christ. 
I never can decide whether I think it's the body of Christ or uh, some other metaphor that is the prominent teaching on uh, the picture of the church in the New Testament. I, I like you are a vine as Jesus taught and we are the branches. But we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 in the next three podcasts. And this podcast is going to look at the body of Christ, holiness, and spiritual gifts. Now, I want to say something at the very beginning. I think there is a widespread mistaken impression of the church for which we are totally responsible. And I'm going to mention this a little later in the teaching. If you were a visitor from another planet and visited churches across this country, you would probably draw the conclusion that the church operates to run meetings on Sunday morning. Everything is aimed toward that. All the work of leadership seems to be directed toward that. And when it's over, it starts all over again. But that is a far cry from God's concept of the church. The church consists of all those who have truly been born of the Spirit and are thereby a living body growing and developing within the world, not apart from it, to touch the hurt and death of the world with the life and love of God. So with that in mind, I want us to begin looking at 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. I want to read the first six verses, which are kind of a preparation statement for us. Beginning with verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's stop after those three verses. It's kind of an interesting beginning. He's introducing he doesn't want them to remain ignorant about spiritual gifts. But the first thing he mentions is what was their immediate past experience and was still around them in Corinth, and that is pagan idol worship. It seems that we could surmise part of their problem is that they have not made a radical enough break from their pagan backgrounds, which employed counterparts to many of the gifts, some of the controversial gifts he's going to mention, especially tongues and prophecy. Some of them had, un, had doubtless spoken inspired utterances or seemingly inspired during various Greco-Roman religious rituals. But in those settings, participants who had heard of the claims of Christ might well have cursed him. So Paul notes First of all, that no one can sincerely declare Jesus to be anathema or accursed who is a true believer. And then, conversely, only Christians, those indwelt by the Spirit, can acknowledge Jesus as Lord. 
I think what is happening here is that the fundamental early Christian confession of faith, which we find in Romans 10, 9, and 10, you remember that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That that early confession of faith flies both in the face of pagan affirmations of some other deity as God and in the face of Jewish insistence that only Yahweh merited the title of God. Go back to verse 4 and let's read this uh, second introductory paragraph. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Here we find the Trinity. The unity and diversity of the Trinity is a picture of the church. And the body of Christ flows out of that unity and diversity. The Spirit, he says in verse 4, gives the gifts, gives the capacity for service to every member of the body. Gifts members did not have before they became Christians. Verse 5 says that the Son, the Lord Jesus, assigns the ministries or the opportunities for service. And then in verse 6, Paul says there are varieties of workings. The word comes from uh, the, the word we derive energy from. Opportunities, uh, varieties of workings which are given by the Father. And he's speaking of power for service. It's fascinating to me that back in 1 Corinthians 3, we found the Trinity in the metaphors of field and building and temple. And now later in the same letter, here is the Trinity presented unified and yet diverse. I want to introduce uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as our topic for the next three lessons. But today... Holiness and Spiritual Gifts, the subject of chapter 12. The principles of corporate holiness, I think can some principles can be derived by looking at this teaching on spiritual gifts. Now, when you talk about spiritual gifts, you have these three full chapters. I'm almost embarrassed to say I was raised in the church I went to every kind of confirmation and youth Bible class. Uh, I sat under dozens of uh, preachers and teachers, and I'd never heard about the spiritual gifts uh, that Paul teaches and that are mentioned throughout the New Testament until I was in my late 20s. And I think there probably are identifiable reasons that we didn't talk about them uh, at least in the context of, uh, of my denomination, the Salvation Army, and other uh, evangelical denominations back then. But you have three full chapters here. This is a huge teaching. You have a teaching in Romans 12 by Paul, in Ephesians 4 by Paul, and then Peter chimes in beautifully with admonitions about gifts in 1 Peter chapter 4. So this is a large and important teaching on spiritual gifts. 
Now we're going to deal with the individual spiritual gifts in the next two lessons. But practical holy living is the subject of chapter 12. And the metaphor is the body of Christ. Now these are my categories. I'm going to suggest four principles we can uncover about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Here's the first one. God desires that there be no independent people in the church. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? It is for the common good, according to verse 7. In other words, spiritual gifts exist for the edification of the church, not for the individual. One cannot read 1 Corinthians 12 and then maintain that they can't function, that they can function apart from other Christians. In other words, that they don't need to be part of the church. We have mentioned this previously in our last two studies. But here, in verses 12 to 26, Paul makes this point powerfully. Let's read uh, a few of these verses together, beginning with verse 12. I'm going to read verse 12 through 20 first, so that uh, you get the flavor of this uh, direct and confrontive teaching. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Boy, I think Paul makes this point powerfully. The idea of an independent Christian is absurd. Now, I want to read down in verse 24 about the middle of it, the second sentence through verse 27. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. You see, by definition, we are a mutually dependent part of the body. And Paul sure made it clear, we are not the body, we are a part. So we must 
all trust God and look Godward. We must work together because we are connected by definition. We cannot serve God without working together because we are one. We cannot be holy alone. Remember, we the church together are the temple of God. It strikes me that there are two impossibilities after we digest the verses we just read. The person insistent that they can be a Christian apart from the church is speaking an impossibility. To be a practicing or functional Christian, at least. I think we have created the perception among non-Christians that being a Christian is just a matter of believing in Jesus. Certainly millions of people who don't attend a church or a Christian fellowship would claim to be Christians. The other impossibility is that a person attending the church but refusing to be a participant, only being an observer, is possible. We are one body so that we all must work together. The goal is not personal success. The goal is a healthy, interdependent church that accomplishes God's purposes together. I hope you see how this teaching on spiritual gifts in the body of Christ fits into our study on corporate holiness. Allow me to apply this teaching with a personal experience example. Three years ago, I fell off a truck and landed on my head in a paved parking lot. I was rushed to the hospital and into ICU with multiple skull fractures and three brain bleeds. Now, the rest of my body launched into protective mode one thing that kept me awake, kept me in pain, and began compensating in every way that it could. The doctors immediately began with treatments and medications, but for two days, the four-person brain surgery team assigned to me was standing by waiting to see if I needed an operation or if healing would be done from within my own body to the point that I wouldn't need an operation. I had a CAT scan every six hours. Now remember, it was me in the ICU bed, but friends, I wasn't alone. <laughs> because by definition, remember, I'm only a part of the body of Christ. And I was connected to Christian brothers and sisters. In verse 26, Paul says, if one part suffers, Remember reading that a moment ago? Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so fellow Christians help carry me through that day. Countless people were praying to God in my behalf, around the country, even in places around the world. The waiting room had a steady stream of visitors. Actually, they filled up the waiting room, supporting not only me, but my son Booth, who was there and was present at the time of the accident. My wife Martha was 700 miles away. She was cared for and assisted by many friends as she 
worked as fast as she could to come from South Florida to Nashville, Tennessee. Charlie and Shirley opened their home for my recovery. Ethan and John took care of our worldly belongings sitting in the truck because it was a moving truck. Dawn and John at Florida Divisional Headquarters and Jan in Tampa rushed to my wife Martha's side, 700 miles away from me. You see, the church lived out 1 Corinthians 12 as the spiritual gifts of encouragement, pastoring, faith, hospitality, helps, mercy, administration, intercession, and others came together in a crisis. I'll never forget when the head of the surgical team came in after 48 hours and said, I don't know what happened, Mr. Jewett, but your brain bleeds have stopped and you won't need surgery. But I knew what happened. God had healed me through his power and in response to the body of Christ. There are no independent people in the body of Christ. Secondly, God desires that there be no unimportant people. Everybody is needed in the body of Christ. Everybody is somebody important in the body of Christ. Now, there is not a principle in this teaching passage that has had a more profound effect on me over the years than this one. And again, these are my principles, but I believe based on this chapter's teaching. In different settings and circumstances, I have come to understand the power of this principle. No unimportant people. As I've taught it and shared it with my congregations, I've also referred to no abandoned people, no neglected people, no superfluous people. No one is left behind in the body of Christ. And I need you to pay close attention here because if the church lived out this reality, I believe this world would be turned upside down. People would flock to our gatherings to behold this amazing group of people living for each other. Now, I skipped verses 21 to 24a when we read earlier for a reason. Listen to this incredible life-transforming teaching about the body of Christ. Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Did you hear that? Can we comprehend that? Paul goes out of his way to turn the natural perception of who is important upside down in the economy of God. Why? 
Verse 25 said, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now, Paul will deal with the importance of this principle again when we study chapter 14 and the Corinthian problem of making the more public, visible gifts of greater importance. But we have to ask on the basis of what we've read in chapter 12, do some persons seem less important? Paul says they are really indispensable. Are some persons less honorable? They are really deserving of special honor. As a pastor for many years, I've tried to put this profound truth into practice. You've picked up that the way spiritual gifts uh, works in the church is that God gives and then we offer and then God uses. But I cannot tell you I've been saying for 40 years that the cook or the keeper of the books or the janitor is absolutely as important as the preacher or the worship leader. In fact, Paul says, more important. Friends, this teaching is not abstract. It's about real people and real life. I hope you'll allow me to uh, tell this other story. I guess you will because I'm in control here. But uh, we were the pastors of the Salvation Army Corps, which is the church in Lakeland, Florida in the early 1990s. And I want to tell you about Clayton. Clayton was an outsider to the church, good man, but lonely and hurting and seeking God. He was a retired accountant in his 70s. He asked, by calling the Salvation Army, if he could send his tithe to our church. Since, as he told me on the phone, he had accepted the Lord watching a TV Christian ministry and didn't have a church home. Some of you are chuckling. What do you think my answer was? Can I send you my tithe? <laughs> Of course, I assured him that he could send his tithe. But then, as he told me his story, I discovered that his wife had died a year earlier, and he was terribly lonely. I prayed with him on the phone and asked if our church visitation team could come by in the next few days and visit him. Now, when Clayton called... My secretary, Tammy, sent something special and forwarded the call to me. I spoke with him and sensed the direction our response should take to him. One of my gifts is leadership. So I referred him to our visitation team, and Lou and Judy, who possess the gift of evangelism, were the leaders of our visitation team, and they went to his home within three days of his call. When he entered our church doors the next Sunday morning, it was the first time he had been in a church for over 40 years. He was greeted by Lou and Judy, as well as Frank, who had the gift of hospitality. And as he did, all newcomers took him to lunch after the worship service. Buddy was there and listened 
and cared and shared his heart with Clayton. One of Buddy's many gifts is mercy. And they struck a very close relationship. Rob has the gift of administration, and he connected with Clayton as a fellow accountant. The whole body of Christ embraced Clayton for who he was, a critically important part of us that God had brought to us, who God had brought to us, who was hurting and isolated and in need. The story is a wonderful one. He professed faith in Christ. I enrolled him as a soldier, which is a member in our church. The rest of the story includes the fact that Clayton had the spiritual gift of giving, and God had blessed him over the years as an accountant. He played a generous role in the capital campaign for a desperately needed church facility. Then he moved to Michigan to be with his children and his family, and there he became the Corps Sergeant Major. That's the leading lay position in a Salvation Army church in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. That is the spiritual gifts and the body of Christ at work. Now let me stop for a moment. You know I like to do this. I certainly understand that when preachers and teachers begin using superlatives like, well, this will turn the world upside down, or uh, people will flock to see this amazing group of people who live for each other, in powerful community, as I said about spiritual gifts and a church that used them, you might suspect this is hyperbole or exaggeration in order to make a point. But dear friends, I don't think this is hyperbole. I think this is a picture of the power of God. Ray Stedman, who is a wonderful pastor and author, wrote in his commentary on 1 Corinthians in this passage. He said, I don't know what you think of when you hear that term, the work of the church. For many, it describes pastoring and teaching Sunday school class or ushering or singing in the choir or perhaps heading a few committees and doing some janitorial work. But that is not what God had in mind at all or has in mind. The work of the church is to heal the brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to the poor, to open the doors to the captives, to set free those who are bound in prisons of doubt, fear, anxiety, and selfishness, and to lead them out into liberty and freedom and power. This is what God has called us to do, and it takes every one of us to do it. We are all in the ministry, and each is given a gift or gifts for that purpose. Just a word of observation. Perhaps we sometimes fail to be the church and to fulfill God's calling, at least partly due to neglecting the teaching on spiritual gifts and thereby missing the boat on our calling to do the real work of the church. Those who I've spoken to or taught on spiritual gifts over the last few decades all heard me say this, 
to deny or ignore the fact that God gives every believer spiritual gifts for the sake of the body is simply to shake our fist at God and say, I'm not going to do it your way. I'll do it my way. The third principle I would suggest is that God desires that there be no self-made people. Now, although this seems almost self-evident in light of our study so far in this lesson, the cultural dominance in the United States of claiming independence and of making a success of yourself by your effort and being self-made as distinctive national qualities is pretty overwhelming. However, not only does Paul's teaching here undermine and contradict this cultural perspective, the gospel itself does the same. No self-made people in the body of Christ. Why? Verse 7 teaches us that every spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 11 teaches us that the Holy Spirit determines what gifts each person receives and distributes them accordingly. In other words, the gifts are not ours, they're God's. The power is not ours, it is God's power exhibited through us. God never gives one a package of power and then says, go ahead and use it for whatever you like. He always holds the reins of power in his hands. You can use God's power if you use it for his purposes. But if you use it for your own, he simply shuts it off. And you are left to run on what the Bible calls the flesh, not the spirit. And the flesh is destructive and counterproductive. Here's a truth that may take us some time to fully digest. The source of all spiritual gifts is the Holy Spirit. And again, Ray Stedman is helpful here when he says, every spiritual gift is supernatural, beyond normal, natural functioning. The gifts of the Spirit do not refer to natural abilities or talents. Most of us have natural abilities. Some have marvelous musical ability. Some have athletic ability. Some have an ability to paint or to draw. Others to excel in various functions of life. Those abilities are given to people all over the world, whether they are believers or not. Like the rain, they fall upon the just and the unjust alike. But spiritual gifts are given only to Christians. They are something you never had before you became a Christian. They are abilities to function in the realm of the spirit, not the body, so that the health of the spirit is improved and strengthened. Now, of course... Natural abilities and spiritual gifts both come from the same God, and therefore they blend together nicely. Someone who has a beautiful voice and sings in church may also have a spiritual gift of encouragement or comfort, and thus, by his or her music, can arouse and awaken a sense of worship. Sometimes, though, 
One hears singers who do not use a spiritual gift. Their singing may be technically excellent, but it is spiritually profitless. Our daughter, Anna, trained to be an opera singer. In fact, she sang in the Virginia Opera for a short time. But then the Lord took her life in a different direction, and she has become wonderfully responsive and obedient to the leading of the Spirit, and he has given her many gifts. She sings, but when she sings, it is spiritually profitable. Because she sings and uses the spiritual gifts God has given to her humbly and beautifully. The principle is that there are no self-made people in the body of Christ. The power belongs to God. God chooses the gifts and distributes the gifts. They are his, not ours. It is God's work happening through us by the Holy Spirit. I hope it's obvious. Spiritual gifts are all about holy living. The final principle is that God desires there be no stagnant people in the body of Christ. We've been reminded in recent lessons that spiritual growth is a critically important part of holiness. Remember, in our salvation, we are justified and forgiven and made a child of God once at a wonderful singular event in time. But that's only the beginning of salvation. For the rest of your life, salvation continues by the process of sanctification. And we recently looked at that in the, in the chapters uh, in Romans 6, 7, 8, and 9. One of the key ways we continue to grow in Christ is by using our spiritual gifts. The alternative is, is, is to stagnate spiritually. Many Christians have experienced that or are experiencing that today, even right now. John Wesley's teaching on salvation was heavily defined in the process of sanctification by spiritual growth, by ongoing growth. I think we need to focus here on the purpose of spiritual gifts clearly taught by Paul in this chapter. Remember, they are for the common good. This truth means that we will all grow when you use your spiritual gift. And contrarily, if I don't use my spiritual gifts, I am inhibiting growth and denying my fellow Christians of God's grace. We grow with each other, friends. We grow because of each other. Can we walk in the Spirit and not use our spiritual gifts? No. Can we live in the Spirit and not use our spiritual gifts? No. This is how God works, through spiritual gifts. Now we can accept it, ignore it, recognize it, like it, understand it. But when we are filled with God's Spirit and allowing Him to work through us, then we are tapping into the inexhaustible energy 
and motivation of God. Now, let me ask you, after looking at chapter 12 and these principles, isn't it clear that God's work of holiness includes his sanctifying us together using spiritual gifts as the body of Christ? Isn't the arena of corporate holiness so evident as we study Paul's teaching? The principles which I drew out of the passage suggest that there are four dangers implicit. The first danger is to seek to function independently. The second danger is to feel unimportant or see anyone else as unimportant. The third is to believe we can serve God without anyone else's help. Only God's. The fourth is slipping easily into a stagnant, non-growing experience with God by making our ministry private and personal. We sing a beautiful song in the Salvation Army written by one of our composers. I want to say yes to the Lord of my life. Say yes to his plan, his design. Dear friends, the question of chapter 12 and of this lesson to you and to me is, will you say yes to the Holy Spirit? I pray that you will. Now, next podcast, we're going to look at the most powerful gift in chapter 13. You'll know it's the love chapter. You'll know we're going to be talking about love. But it has some deep and profound lessons for us in terms of living together as the body of Christ. And then, chapter 14, we'll talk about holiness and prophecy and tongues and all those other gifts. I hope you'll join us again, but I hope more than that, that you will allow the Lord, who has spoken through his word to you in a very specific way, allow him an openness Seek his heart with your heart. Say yes to the Lord of your life. God bless you and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.